You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I tell you, this auto strike just, it ain't going away here. It seems like it's getting even worse. The UAW just came across the Bloomberg Terminal uh, around 10:15 Wall Street time. The UAW says... 5,000 members at GM Arlington Assembly joined strike. So this is just kind of going the wrong way. And it got to the point now where General Motors today, after putting out some good numbers, removes guidance because of the strike. So I don't know what's going on there. But I know who does know. Kevin Tynan, he's a senior automotive analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us via Zoom from our Princeton office. Kevin, tell us what GM said today you know, about the strike and how it's impacting their, I guess, operations. Yeah, well, look, that was strike started late, late in the third quarter. So it will be the impact. I mean, every day of the fourth quarter so far has been uh, impacted by the strike. But, you know, the backwards looking results were actually pretty good, better than expected and just show the profitability that the company can produce. Um, and the, you know, removing some guidance there is just a, an issue of not flaunting that you're going to make 14 billion uh, <laughs> when you're trying when you're trying to negotiate with the union. But, um, you know, it could mean it's close, right? That this is the final turns of the screw that uh, kind of gets the, the manufacturer to give what the union thinks they deserve. I think they're probably close on the, uh, the wage, the increase, the percentage, and probably the, the ratification bonus. I think it's all the sort of secondary issues there in terms of headcount, capacity, uh, you know, new product plants and things like that that are are the sticking points this late in the negotiations. Why are only some plants on strike? Um, well, you you know, you, it looks bad for everyone, and it's very difficult to put out that many workers, right? Because then they go to the strike fund, um, and then you completely shut down everything. And I think it's just counterproductive to say, you know, we're not going to produce anything at all. Then you're putting. Um, the host in, in real danger. All right. So, Kevin, I guess the, the big issue, for, as I understand it, is, you know, as the industry, I guess, continues its evolution in the EV front, there's a real question as to how many jobs are going to be needed and where those jobs are going to be. And they're going to be different types of jobs to the point where I guess the companies are saying, hey, we can't guarantee X number of positions because, quite frankly, we don't know 
what positions we're going to need. Is that kind of where we are? And if so, I don't know how you resolve that. Yeah, and look, and the other issue, too, is that as labor costs increase for those union shops, they're only GM, Ford, and Stellantis brands. So even if there were no EV transition, the domestic manufacturers and their brands are going to be less competitive against even you know, Honda in, in Ohio or Nissan in Tennessee or any of the plants down in the south that are not unionized, never mind the EV manufacturers who are not unionized as well. So, um, you know, there's, there's the EV transition is part of it, but the manufacturers have been very profitable on internal combustion, but by making fewer vehicles. So I think that's where the capacity okay. and the headcount uncertainty comes in as well, where you're saying, you know, yes, we're making money, but we're doing it on fewer units. We can't be beholden to these capacity you know, and footprint requirements going forward when we don't know that we're actually going to need that much. What are the UAW members being paid and what are they asking for? Yeah, so, it, it, you know, when you look at it all in as the cost to the manufacturer, it's probably in the $60 per hour range and it'll go up into the 90s and maybe even higher depending where the contract is ultimately done. You know, and then you compare that all into the transplants of European or Asian manufacturers or EV manufacturers, and they're, they're, you know, the cost to the company is significantly less. Um, you know, and that's what probably needs to be reconciled and what the domestic manufacturers are saying, look, if you want to increase your membership, you can't just keep coming back to us, right? You take your 25% increase and go show it to some of these other manufacturers and try and build your base that way because we don't have much more to give. So, Kevin, when we do get a resolution, is it going to be, are we just assuming that it's going to apply to all three, the big three automakers? Oops, Kevin, you hear us? Oh, I think we lost Kevin. All right. Well, that was my big smart question of the day, and I didn't get, I know, I didn't get the answer. We need to know. <laughs> we'll get one chance. I think we lost the audio with Kevin, so we'll have to go back to that. But again, um, you know, it's serious here for these automakers because, you know, I mean, GM, again, pulling its guidance. But as Kevin said, maybe that just might be a negotiating tactic here. You don't, you don't want to say, oh, yeah, we, we reiterate our profit guidance of $14 billion or something like that when you're trying to plead, uh, you know, and try to negotiate salaries. And especially given what we were talking about earlier, GM beating third quarter estimates despite losing $200 million from the walkout during that quarterly period, but then also what it means for when it comes to a automaker like that, that has been rethinking its growth plans for EV sales, because those sales of plugins have been actually slower than anticipated. So a lot of different moving pieces there. All right, let's go back to Kevin Tynan. We got him back. We got the audio back. So, Kevin, my question was just when we do get a, an agreement, is it going to apply to all three uh, automakers just kind of automatically? Yeah, well, you, typically what would happen historically, you'd have negotiation between the union and one manufacturer, usually the most financially sound, and then the other deals fall into place. This has been unique in that the union's been negotiating with all three at the same time. So, yeah, this one would probably happen amongst all three in one shot and then it'll just be a matter of catching up on production uh over the subsequent quarters going into 2024 yeah 
As far as looking ahead and what could all this play out, what exactly do you think would be the remaining timetable for how long this actually could continue on for? Yeah, I, I think it's close. You know, I think people look at it like this is a lot of pressure on the manufacturers, and it certainly is, but it's also pressure on the union as well. Um, you know, you have a lot of people that aren't earning what they're used to earning, and they're in the strike fund. Um, and everybody, I think, wants to move forward. So I would say we're probably closer, and I, I, this is based on nothing than just what we're hearing and the rhetoric is that um, it's probably closer than it isn't, and I think it's the, the, the wage number is probably there, and then it's just some of these other secondary issues that just need to be hammered out in terms of details. Uh, because manufacturers, again, they want that flexibility to say, what this industry looks like in three, four years from now may not be what it is today, and we need the flexibility to rationalize cost if that's the case. Hey, Kevin, a big picture. You know, I just replaced the 2014 BMW with a stick shift, and I got the 2024 BMW X3. Extraordinarily happy. Didn't even think about getting an EV because it was such a premium price. So is the world rethinking? Are you guys, is the industry rethinking what the ultimate end market is for EVs? I mean, it seems like it's not as strong as I maybe once thought. Yeah, I think so. And there, and that's playing out in a lot of different ways. You know, dealers were, you know, the manufacturers are going to the dealers and saying, look, you need to fit your, outfit your stores for this. And now they're kind of holding back a little bit and the dealers are waiting it out, not being the first ones to move. But I think if the demand and profitability profile of EV doesn't improve significantly through 2024, um, and we've already seen it, right? Ford pushed out its uh, building its battery plant. General Motors put another year on the timeline. I think if not by the end of next year, there will be some of those 100% uh, by 2035 and the longer term goals are going to start to be walked back because the addressable market might not be uh, what it seemed to be when it was first going. And, and ultimately, when you look at it, you know, on the one hand, you have everybody saying how Tesla dominates in EV. But if demand goes away, you know, then you're questioning really everybody else, right? If there's no demand for Tesla, what is the demand for a Ford EV or a GM EV, which don't even exist yet in, in any kind of volume? Yep. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, it seems like the market's changing a little bit. Uh, and again, I went internal combustion engine in old school. <laughs> Kevin Tiny, thanks so much for joining us. Kevin is the senior automotive analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's ensconced down in our... Princeton, New Jersey, uh, headquarters down there. Great lunches down there, by the way. Ooh. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. 
the people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to continue talking about these markets here because, again, we are right in the middle of earnings. Uh, we've got yields moving all over the place, kind of, as Gina said, kind of dictating the market to a certain degree. Uh, let's bring in Liz Young. She's head of investment strategy at SoFi. Um, and Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I know you cut your teeth on small caps and, and Gina Martin Adams from Bloomberg Intelligence was just talking about kind of the tough headwinds they face. How do you think about the small cap space right here? Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me. So I, I did cut my teeth as a small cap analyst and I have a soft spot in my heart for them. Uh, and it does pain me at a time like this to say, I just don't think that they're a good buy yet. And you look at where we are in the economic cycle and where yields are, many small cap companies, because they're new and because they're growing, need financing in order to produce that growth. So as, as yields rise, as borrowing costs rise and capital is constricted, small cap companies feel that much more than large cap companies do who can usually finance their growth internally. So small caps are, are probably feeling the pain um, of capital constriction much more. Also, just where you are in the economic cycle, I still think there are many, many signals telling us that we are late cycle. Small caps tend to outperform in early cycle. So we would need to finish late cycle, get through probably a bit of a slowdown, and then restart the early part of the cycle, which I just do not think is where we are today. What are small cap stocks in the technology sector telling us at this point? Because typically, if they're holding up better, that could mean brighter times ahead for small caps. Are we seeing any indication of that right now? Well, I, I think sectors as a whole, as you move down the market cap spectrum, the makeup is very different. So technology is one of those. Obviously, you're not seeing big tech stocks uh, in the, the behavior that we're seeing in big tech stocks. You're not going to see that in the small cap space. Generally speaking, in small cap tech, you're seeing things that are down the supply chain. So they're making components or maybe they're early software companies. So they're still going to be quite sensitive to moves in the market and probably quite sensitive to yields as well. Small cap is actually quite dominated by things like healthcare and the differences in industry makeup of healthcare uh, can affect the performance of small caps tremendously. As you move down the market cap spectrum, just beta in general is increased. So I would be careful in a rising rate environment, I would be careful with uh, really growthy names, particularly in the small cap space. And generally speaking, even when you do enter that early cycle behavior and small caps tend to outperform, what usually tends to outperform is small cap value because a lot of those are dominated by the financial space. So 
it, it really does make a difference when you look at the sector makeup of different size categories, and investors should keep that in mind as we move through these different parts of the business cycle. Hey, Liz, I wonder, just kind of stepping back here, you know, in a world where you've got, you know, the, the 10 year at 4.87, the 30 year, boy, it's at 5%. Haven't seen that in, in a while. And of course, the two year at 5.1%. At in that kind of world, can equities perform? Well, so far they've done okay. Right? Yep. I mean, we've seen we've seen yields be pretty volatile all year since the end of July. So that local equity top in July, July thirty first. Obviously, we saw quite a swift rise in the ten year since that point, and equity saw a downdraft. That's logically and rationally how I think it should work. You should see some pressure on valuations as yields rise. So I think that that's actually been a pretty rational change in tone in the market. And it's been quite orderly. I mean, the drawdown, although it feels like it's been prolonged because we were used to such a strong up up movement in the beginning of the year, it feels long, but it really has not been that long, nor has it been that terrible. I mean, it hit maybe seven and a half percent down on the S&P at worst. So not even in correction territory. Now, as yields stay high, I think that's where valuations really come into question. And as we go through Q3 earnings season, obviously looking out into Q4 and into 2024, expectations are really high. And I think the market is priced for those expectations to come true. So as we get more information from CEOs and guidance, if we find out that those earnings are not realistic to achieve, we're probably going to see more pressure on valuations and yields are not necessarily helping that story. So uh, I don't think that stocks can maintain these valuations if we keep yields this high for a very, very long period of time. But it's not going to happen uh, in a in a broad swath across the market. You're going to see probably discerning choices in each sector of companies that are less sensitive to rates doing better. What's the make or break level in the 10-year Treasury yield to where there would be a potentially bigger calibration in the broader U.S. stock market? Uh, I don't know that there's necessarily a level that's going to send it all one direction or another. 5% was clearly a very mental threshold for people. Uh, I still think that that's probably the case. There's still there's still people out there calling for 6% and maybe even 7% and higher. So I think if, when you look at it from the investor standpoint, you have individual investors or retail investors who are going to be more sensitive to hearing about mortgage rates going up. So as mortgage rates crept towards 8%, I think that gave people a lot of pause about whether or not they wanted to be throwing all their money at risk assets. And then you've got institutional investors uh, and, and money managers who are watching yields and the inversion much more closely, and they're watching the cost of capital much more closely. So the 10-year treasury at 5% or above gives them a little bit more consternation. So I don't think that there's a magic number that, you know, oh my gosh, if we get to that, everything changes. But as it gets higher, it does get more difficult to sustain. And as you have corporate debt coming due next year and the year after, many corporations have to renew their debt. And those corporations took that debt out when rates were much lower. So I think we're slowly going to hear about things being unsustainable at this level of rates. I'm not entirely sold that we're going to be able to stay this high for very, very long because I just don't think the economy can withstand it. Hey, Liz, uh, tech is going to take center stage here uh, after the close today with Microsoft and Alphabet. What? How do you guys think about tech right here? 
Tech is definitely going to take center stage this week, and, and I think everybody's going to be watching and listening. I would say this. Tech has been the darling this year, and it, almost as if it can do well in any environment. If rates are going up, it's supposed to do well. If they're going down, it's supposed to do well. Sideways, up, down, every everything uh, has been true at certain points. That's not typically how an asset class will work. So I think we're going to start seeing separation, especially among big tech. And we talk about them, whether you want to call them the Magnificent Seven or just big tech stocks in general, we talk about them as a, a homogenous asset class, but they're really not. And many of them are dependent on different parts of the consumer, on different parts of the economy. And I think we're going to start seeing some divergence in performance among those names where it's not just, okay, you win because you're in that big tech basket. Yep. So this week I think is really important, uh, not just for the results, because interestingly, as earnings have come in so far, you're right. seeing even companies that have beat still be punished. So it's not just about the results. It's about the sentiment and the commentary that comes out of those companies, yep. because that's what will send the market in a different direction. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate getting some of your time. Liz Young, she's head of investment strategy uh, at SoFi. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Sonia Chawla uh, joins us. Uh, she is a... Uh, portfolio manager, partner at Times Square Capital Management, located, guess where, Jess? Times Square. Ooh. How about that? Go figure some good naming rights there. So, no, thanks so much for joining us. You're live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so we appreciate you making the time here. What's your call on technology here? Boy, I hear some big, big numbers in terms of CapEx, the cloud, and then the kids are talking about this thing, AI. Um, <laughs> how do you put that all together and have a tech call? Yeah, sure. I would say the investor sentiment and positioning is broadly cautious as we head into Q3 earnings season, as there is angst building around 2024 outlooks and whether we will get a Q4 budget flush. Uh, if we look at channel checks and alternative data providers, they're painting a conflicting message on the health of IT spending environment. And I would describe the visibility as clear as mud at this okay. point. And, uh, what I would say is that today's, tonight's uh, earnings calls from the mega caps mm -hmm. like Google and Microsoft will give us a better understanding of whether the public cloud consumption headwinds are abating or not and the trajectory of the hyperscaler CapEx into 2024. Um, you know, the, the thing is that uh, if you rewind to the start of 2023, uh, as cost of capital has risen, yep. um, you know, all these companies went on an endeavor to become financially fit. So we've seen significant positive earnings and free cash flow revisions upwards. Margin expansions has have taken place. But what has been pressured is the net revenue retention rates as expansions have slowed, as customers have cut back on spending and optimize their uh, budgets uh, with the with these big uh, mega caps and other software providers. So the question is going forward into 2024 with Gen AI products from all these uh, software companies ramping, whether that will serve as an incremental monetization driver 
uh, into 24 to drive you know, better revenue growth, uh, especially given that the macro environment continues to be broadly stable and the comps are going to be easier into 2024. The last point I would highlight on this front is that uh, we should not overlook the lapping of the precipitous decline in venture capital funding that started in 2Q of last year. If you look at the trailing 12-month VC funding, it is sitting at 262 billion, which is down a little over 50% year over year from 538 billion last year. And the biggest negative step, step down occurred between Q2 and Q3 of last year. And uh, you know, assuming a certain percentage of these VC funds end up as public cloud revenues, the drag from that collapse in VC funding exactly a year ago by our estimate is, you know, is a drag of about 10% of public cloud revenues. So I think that's the comps are, are, are easing into, into the back half. So that's the backdrop. And you know, we are very interested to see uh, how the revenues flow are, are reported tonight. Something I'm keeping a close eye on is buybacks, because we know that technology companies in particular have been a key pillar of support when mm -hmm. you think about the broader uh, stock market in last year with those buybacks being at a record. But they did slow in the first half of the year as technology companies. Obviously, we're going through a lot of cost-cutting efforts. What are you expecting to hear on that front from some of these big tech companies? Yeah, we, we expect capital allocation um, to be an important topic going forward, given the cost of capital is higher. And so I think uh, expect a similar strategy going forward in terms of buybacks uh, as free cash flows have ramped up. I do expect uh, I do expect a balance between investments and buybacks, um, and uh, I don't expect any major surprises on that front going forward. So new, for the first half of the year, we all learned a new term: AI. And every company <laughs> that reported earnings for two or three quarters, whether they made dog food or whether they made you know, missiles, talked about how AI is transforming their business and they're supercharge it. Kroger, Kroger those mentions yeah. in the yeah, earnings I mean, reports. You know, Wendy's, McDonald's. Um, what is AI to you and is it incremental to spending? Yes, uh, it's an interesting, uh, you know, initially, when uh, if you look at the equity performance between May and July, we got we were in the hype cycle mm -hmm. of AI, um, and in general, I would say investors generally overestimate the impact of new technologies like Gen AI in the near term, but underestimate okay. the longer term impact. So, what is Gen AI? Definitely, I think. You know, we've been, as part of our ongoing due diligence, talked to a lot of customers. We've spoken to leaders um, of IT departments at big uh, financial institutions, industrials, and healthcare companies. And there is definitely um, a view internally that Gen AI could be a meaningful productivity enhancer. Um, and all these uh, companies are exploring different Gen AI use cases within their organizations. Our sense is that the, uh, the first use cases for Gen AI are probably going to be internal use cases to improve productivity improvement, uh, be it in a, a call center agent, 
uh, for a marketing professional, for a software developer, these tools, anecdotally, what we've heard, uh, increase productivity by 25 to 30%. So they're definitely pretty impactful. There is a lot of interest within organizations, but they're, they're also mindful um, and want to understand the data privacy issues around Gen AI, security issues around Gen AI, um, and the cost, uh, you know, the cost of implementing Gen AI. So they're moving thoughtfully and conservatively. That's why I said we overestimate the impact <laughs> of the near term, but underestimate the longer term impact. So as Gen AI products from software vendors become general, you know, more generally available, uh, Microsoft is coming out on November 1st, for example, a lot of these tools will be rolled out um, then the enterprises will you know, decide whether it makes sense for them uh, at the cost, at the price points that they're being delivered. Um, but from our vantage point, it's more a 2024, 2025 revenue growth. Okay. Right. We only have about a minute left, but if you were able to join the earnings call for Microsoft or Alphabet, what question would you ask for each company? Yeah, the number one question is, um, what is uh, happening on the consumption optimize, optimization? Uh, have customers optimized the spend, uh, or is there more to go on that front? And the second is the trajectory of the CapEx spending. Um, you know, that's an important tell for future demand that may be coming on the Gen AI front. Because the expect, I mean, the understanding, or at least my understanding is, Gen AI is incremental to existing budgets? Is that true in your mind? So there will be definitely repurposing off budgets. Okay. So savings in some parts of the budget will be repurposed to Gen AI. Um, but, you know, I do believe that, you know, our conversations are suggesting that the IT budgets are looking to go up mid to high single digit percentage points in 2024. So, and Part of that is Gen AI related. And that view is, that budget outlook is slightly better than what we've seen in 2023. Okay, very good. Uh, we'll certainly be paying attention to the uh, Microsoft and to the Google numbers after the close tonight. Sonu Trawla, partner and portfolio manager at Times Square Capital Management. Uh, timely uh, discussion here as we get ready to kick off some big, big uh, tech earnings. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Ankrate.com, <laughs> U.S. home mortgage, 30-year fixed, uh, 7.98%, uh, just extraordinary. That is the highest since March of 2000. Wow. Makes me feel less dumb for my 6% mortgage I got back in March of this year which I did feel a little like a knucklehead back then, Sweeney 6%, but uh, not too bad. But that can't be good for like the housing market overall. Let's check in with somebody who uh, knows this stuff. Brad Dillman, Chief Economist, RPM Living is the firm. Hey, Brad, we got a mortgage rate up there at 8% on a 30-year fixed. Man, what's that mean for the residential real estate market? Well, I think we can see that in the existing home sales, right? If that number is now at 4 million seasonally adjusted annualized, that's pretty ugly. That we got to go back to the Great Recession to see a figure that bad. So it translates into low volume, that's for sure. And we're going to get a batch of housing data throughout this week. So starting tomorrow, we'll have U.S. new home sales for the month of September. When we did get August data, it did fall to a five-month low. What are you thinking that we'll end up seeing from this data tomorrow? I think the if uh, the consensus figure I had in front of me was 686. Uh, I think we may actually beat that. That's to say 686,000 seasonally adjusted annualized. I think it'll come in below 700, but I think it'll have a little bit more strength to it. Um, new home sales obviously came down from their peak, but you know if you compare them to pre-COVID era, they're still pretty strong. Also, though. Another data point that we'll get later this week, which is important to look at the future direction when it comes to the housing market, is also when you're looking at housing starts and building permits. And when you're looking at pending home sales, obviously a leading indicator of existing home sales, given typically they're going to go under contract a month or two before they end up being sold. What are you seeing on that end? And is that showing any sort of promising signs more broadly for the housing market? You know, I really look at the builders when I when I think about this. And what I saw with them was really in the last 90 days or so, the reporting of a material slowdown in community traffic that's very clearly tied to the recent move in the 10-year treasury rate. Um, I think when we look at the existing home sales side and pending home sales and how that may move, we really end up with a question of geography here. And it translates to what we see on the rental market too. The areas that are really strong today, it's uh, Madison, Wisconsin. It's Omaha, Nebraska. Urbana-Champaign, Illinois. It's markets that really haven't been in the spotlight in terms of housing in quite some time. And these may be the kinds of areas that actually lead even in this high interest rate environment. So, Brad, so, you know, I've heard I've heard from uh, real estate folks like yourselves that there's just not enough housing in the United States. And A, inventory. how did that happen, if that's even true? And I mean, and B, how do you fix it? So, A, yeah, I think it is true. Uh, my own analysis shows that we're underbuilt by about 650,000 units right now. How that happened really goes all the way back to the Great Recession and really our efforts to stimulate home prices for about five years uh, by increasing affordability uh, on the margin back then. It resulted in less affordability in subsequent time periods and therefore lower construction volume, particularly in single family, where it took more savings and migration 
uh, to affordability for people to own. Now, we are closing this gap. The degree to which we're underbuilt has been made up for in two parts. One has been that we have seen a de facto housing supply stimulus in terms of COVID era response. We saw eviction moratoria translate to high rent growth and that into high multifamily starts. And then of course, the really low interest rates that we had back then in terms of mortgages translating to home price appreciation, which translated into a lot of single family starts. We're closing this gap. I think we're underbuilt by 650,000 units today. Let's put that in context. There's nearly 1.7 million housing units under construction right now. So that means we've just by today's figures, yeah, you've got to figure in obsolescence and such, but if we finished everything that's under construction right now, we'd be overbuilt by a million units. What about when it comes to particular home builders? Because DR Horton, Lennar, they have a particular demographic when it comes to that. But when it comes to housing affordability for lower income demographics, what builders do you think are out there that could help this particular segment of the population? I just think it's going to be smaller builders, some of which may not even be publicly traded, right? These are going to be folks who are in these much smaller markets that actually have a pretty good land basis. If we look at the big builders that focus on that move up buyer, that's really where a lot of the pain is right now. These people can't sell their existing home at an attractive enough price, really because of mortgage rates. And then they can't turn around and get the discounts that they'd really need into the home that they would move into. So the move up buyers really hurt right now. We're seeing a little bit of a shift, I'd say, to you know call it C locations, not so much in the D locations anymore, but a, a shift back into C, a, a focus on kind of smaller and higher quality product um, that really might kind of reflect a, a bumping down effect when it comes to ownership. We can flip that to the rental side where it looks like supply you know, is siphoning demand from class B and providing a lot of alternatives now for renters who look to more affordable but still quality options. Are you, are you down in, in Atlanta, Brad? No, I'm in Clintonville, Wisconsin. Clintonville. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm remote. I, uh, I work for a company that's based out of Austin and I spend time there, but I'm in, in rural Wisconsin, which is where the wife is from. Clinton, where's Clinton, Wisconsin? Uh, Clintonville is about 45 minutes west of Green Bay. Uh, they make fire trucks out here. <laughs> so how's the winter treating you so far? Ooh. It's not too bad yet. I got a little bit of a storm right now, but it's actually a beautiful <laughs> fall still. But maybe we talk in a few months when it's you know dark at four o'clock and so. Right. All right. If I want, so if I want to buy a four bedroom, fairly new construction, Clintonville, Wisconsin, what's that going to run me? Well, there's not too much supply out here. I'll tell you that. Um, but you know, we I think we can say that you know on the on the new home side, yep. prices are down from their peak. I would think if you wanted to build in rural America, if you wanted to go build in, in you know, Urbana-Champaign, which is, is, is rural enough for anybody who's sitting in New York or a major metropolitan area, and you want your four bedroom house, it's really nice. You can look anywhere from 350 to, to 450. Do you talk nice. to brokers often? And if so, what are they telling you about what they're hearing anecdotally from potential buyers? You know, I, I don't talk to bro brokers personally. I'm a data guy, right? So I see through this in, in data and reading reports. Uh, but what I am hearing from the home builders has been this really this decline in community traffic. Um, that, you know, the builders have been buying down rate for people. They're really getting to the end of that. Um, they're, they're not wanting to cut their asking price yet. And so they're turning around. They're trying to make up margin by, by basically going after the trade. So labor and materials costs and trying to get concessions on that front. Dude, you're not kidding, man. I just popped up Clintonville on the Google Maps. You are west of Green Bay, uh, northwest of Appleton. Um, that dude, you are like the center of America. No, no question, right? What's a, how's life out there? Well, I've only been out here for about a month and a half. <laughs> right. I, I was in Seattle. I was in Boston. I was in London, and then I was in Atlanta. Wow, so, you know, all this over is new for me. It's a whole new region of the country, and cool. it's, it's neat. Oh, well, all right, what great. does it, it tell us like... about like the economy? Like, what are you seeing out there? 
I mean, some growth, right? Uh, you know, the, the, an area like this had had a tough time coming out of the Great Recession for quite a long time. And I'd say really around 2018, 2019 or so, things started to pick up. Awesome. And then, of course, the pandemic led to enough remote work and, and then some continued growth out here. You know, out here, though, it's a lot of farming. It's manufacturing, right? Yep. We build fire trucks um, and a little bit in terms of wind turbines and things like this. Awesome. All right, Brad. Great chatting with you. Great getting the uh, the local color from Clintonville, uh, Wisconsin. Brad Dillman, he's the chief economist, RPM Living. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Molly Smith, Pulse Money Live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Earnings here. We've all been focusing on the tech earnings coming out after the close. We had some good industrial earnings out. 3M uh, and GE both had some pretty good numbers, boosted the profit outlook. The stocks are up 5 or 6%. We said we got to get Brooke Sutherland in here. She is the Bloomberg Opinion person who covers industrial America uh, like no one else. Hey, Brooke, I don't know. It seems like industrial America is doing okay. What are your takeaways from 3M? Do you know what 3M stands for? This is an awkward pause. Minnesota no, Mining and Manufacturing. Thank 3M you, and GE. You know what GE stands for? General Electric. Dang, there you go. Got one of them. Exactly. <laughs> What's your takeaway, Brooke, from some of these companies here? Sure. So I, there's a unique stories happening at both GE and 3M. Um, and so, you know, at GE, it's really a story of just the aerospace market is continuing to boom. Um, and there is a supply problem there rather than a demand problem that the airlines of the world, uh, air lessers, want more aircraft, more jet engines than these companies can produce. Really? Um, and demand is really very okay. robust still. So if you're um, GE, do you not have the supply chain product uh, in, I guess, the stuff to make them? Or you're just at capacity? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, okay. And so what was interesting in the U.S. is that while we extended payroll aid to the airlines during mm -hmm. the pandemic, we did not do that to the aircraft manufacturers. Oh. And so all of these companies uh, slashed their workforces very aggressively. Um, and then when they tried to rehire them, they found that that was more difficult than they thought it was going to be, that okay. a number of people had sort of retired. Um, there was obviously a lot of competition for skilled labor. Uh, that is particularly true, this labor shortage issue at the small um, suppliers. So okay. if you're a company like GE, your ability to compete for top talent is better than somebody further down the line. Um, but of course, GE depends on these smaller uh, suppliers to be able to turn out jet engines. I talked with Larry Culp this morning, actually, and he, uh, the CEO of GE, and talked about how they're still seeing supply chain constraints um, and that delinquencies were up in the third quarter relative to the second quarter. They're working hand in hand with their supply chain to try to really ramp up output, but it is, it's challenging. So how much has a story of materials versus labor issues? I think it's more on the labor front at okay. this point. Um, that's really where the constraints are. All right, so 3M, what's the story there? Three uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, great town, by the way, if you haven't been. It is. Uh, it is not a demand story at 3M to the same extent as what we're seeing in GE. They actually uh, cut their organic sales growth outlook for the year. Um, they're continuing to see a lot of weakness in consumer markets, electronics, some spottiness in industrials amid a slowdown in Europe uh, and, you know, less 
robust performance in China than I think a lot of companies were hoping for as we came out of the other end of, of the COVID lockdowns there. Um, they did raise their profit guidance, and that reflects very aggressive cost-cutting actions that they're taking. Now, this is not the first restructuring effort by 3M <laughs> under any uh, stretch of the imagination, but this one does appeal, appear excuse me, to have a little bit more heft to it, um, where it is actually showing up on the bottom line. One of the longstanding complaints that analysts have had about 3M is that it announces these restructuring programs, and then we just never really see any kind of impact. Ah, okay. um, that It appears to be different this time around, and I think that's why you're seeing some enthusiasm around the stock today. Well, tell us a little bit about the restructuring efforts that 3M has made. I, I got a little lost trying to get ready for this to see just how many job cuts they've made and what kinds of different stages it's come in. So if you could give us a little bit of the backstory there. Sure, it's been going on for you know a few years now. I mean, the bigger issue with 3M apart from arguably a bloated cost structure is that they have these legacy liabilities hanging over their head that involve uh, forever chemicals um, or PFAS and uh, also earplugs that they sold to the military oh, that veterans right. have alleged um, contributed to hearing loss. So those have really been weighing on the company because they were somewhat open-ended. It was not really clear what was going to happen. Now, 3M does have a settlement um, for the public water claims related to PFAS, that, which is working its way through the court, and it also has a settlement for the uh, combat arms, the earplugs issue, which is also going to work its way through the system. So they've made progress in certain terms of clearing out some of these legacy issues, but there are still some PFAS items outstanding that I think will continue to make this a, a tricky stock to own for investors because you're not yep. really just betting on industrial markets or cost That's what I was just going to ask you about because I'm looking at the stock price performance and 3M's down about 25% year to date, but GE is up about 75% year to date. So when I think of GE, I'm back, I go back to the days when it was everything. It was, GE was the economy, including the financial system. Obviously they've pared it down dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. Are they, is Larry Culp the CEO, are they done? Do we have the, the new GE or is there still stuff to sell or spin off? Or so their plan is to spin off GE Vernova, which will be the energy businesses. So that's their gas turbines, but also the renewable energy, the wind turbines businesses. Um, they said today that that is going to happen in the second quarter of 2024, which is around the you know sort of general time frame that they've given before, but a little bit more specific um, in detail. Uh, and then once that happens, you're mostly done as yeah. far as the streamlining <laughs> process. Um, it's an aerospace and defense company with some legacy insurance liabilities that they likely will want to sort out sooner rather than later just to really clean up the story. Um, and then I think the conversation really shifts to do you start looking at acquisitions? Really? Um, uh. Which is crazy to think about after you know the, the dark days of GE and cash flow burn and all of that, but the balance sheet is in a much better place. And I'm just, it, I was just going to point that out. You talk about the balance sheet. I'm looking for on my FA function and back in 2019, they had 94 billion of debt. That's down to like 23, 24 billion of debt. That's pretty good. Right, because they've sold off all these businesses. Okay. And so they've been able to bring in money and, and really chip away at that debt load. And that puts the company in a position where we can have these conversations about, you know, what kinds of acquisitions might make sense. Um, you know, GE will be, once the, they've spun off the energy business, it will be somewhat unique in that the aerospace business will be highly focused on engines. Um, you don't really have a comparable. Uh, Raytheon, of course, produces the, the GTF out of its Pratt & Whitney unit, but they have a much more robust defense business. So that raises the question of would GE want to get you know deeper into defense? Or are there other parts of aerospace that might be appealing to the company, whether that's avionics or other types of uh, aircraft parts? This is all really impressive for Larry Culp, 
you would think, right? I mean, look at like the the story that he's inherited. Obviously, like there's been a, a bit of turnover at the top, but he's been really, you know, the the man of the past couple of years here at the top of the, of the GE ladder. I mean, what kind of legacy does that mean for him and like all that he has done to turn this company around? I mean, I used to cover it back when the bonds were not trading so well. I mean, this is like <laughs> you were saying now the deleveraging story has been incredible, but it's got to be like, I mean, he's got to be like CEO of the century. <laughs> sure. He's certainly being paid a lot of money uh, to do this, but um, he he really has accomplished a lot um, at GE, and it's really been impressive to, to see. Um, it's been a long process with some stops and starts, but um, to make this kind of progress on the debt load particularly gives GE a future that really just was not you know, conceivable a few years ago. And I think that's really to Larry's credit. Yeah, and to ha even have the discussion, which I can't remember the last time we did with GE about growing. I mean, it's been almost 20 years. I mean, I think since um, Jack Welch left, it's been a, a the conversation's been focusing. And well, they did some acquisitions in the ML, ML era yes. that didn't work okay. out so okay. well. That kind of, <laughs> exactly. But, uh, yes, correct. All right, Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Brooke Sutherland, she's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, covering all the industrial uh, America, some great companies, some great industries. She covers the deal. She kind of does it all. So we appreciate getting a few minutes of Brooke's time here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Right now, we want to talk big, big media. Uh, we're going to talk music, we're going to talk Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. There's lots to talk about. And we go to our go-to analyst, Geetha Ranganathan. She is the uh, media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us via Zoom from the uh, headquarters of BI down in Princeton, New Jersey. Geetha, let's start with Spotify. Good story. Some good numbers. Tell us what uh, we got from our friends at Spotify. Yeah, excellent story, uh, Paul, at, at Spotify when they reported their 3Q today. So they beat on almost every metric that we were looking at. User numbers came in really strong. Premium subscriber momentum will continue into 4Q. Uh, they said that they expect their monthly active users to reach the 600 million mark by the end of this year. They are, they're targeting about a billion uh, in, in the next three to four years time. But I think most important for this story was really the inflection in the profitability metric. I mean, this is a, this is a, a streaming company that has plenty of subscribers, but for some reason they haven't been really able to generate profits. Uh, and and that's re that really kind of goes to their business model. But for the first time in two years, they actually generated a, a nice surprise profit, which is, I think, what is really driving most of that stock reaction today. And tell us, Geetha, is that profitability because um, Spotify was raising prices uh, in the period or like more to the strength of the business that you're talking about? Now, that's a great point. Yes, they did raise prices. And I think what it tells us in terms of their, uh, you know, not just their uh, the, the operating income number, but with the fact that they were able to gain subscribers even as they increase prices just tells us that they have a lot of pricing power. There's obviously a lot of stickiness for the product. Uh, but in terms of the margin story itself, they, they have really been looking at cost discipline very, very carefully. And so they have been able to finally cut down on their marketing spend. They've been able to cut down on personnel costs, which is what drove uh, that operating profit as well as um, a, a slight margin expansion. All right, Geetha, uh, you cover everything. You're di you, we can go many different directions. Right now, we're going to switch gears and go to Hollywood. The actors, what's going on? They're still on strike. Don't they know they don't live in the real world? What's going on with the actors? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, a few days ago, actually, maybe a, a couple of weeks ago, we know that they, you know, they had been talking to the studios, but then everything kind of hit a, a stalemate again when they basically said that they wanted a viewership bonus. Uh, I think they said uh, the industry basically said it would cost them something like about a billion dollars. And I think that was kind of a, a no go. Uh, we had, you know, the Netflix CEO kind of talk about it at the Bloomberg Screen Time conference, and that's where kind of things have ha have been left off. So it's supposed to uh, restart, I think, today, but we'll see where it goes. In the meantime, studios uh, are really kind of uh, facing a difficult situation. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the 2024 content slate. We just saw that Paramount pushed out Mission Impossible 8 by a whole year now to 2025. You know, we know Disney pushed out Deadpool 3. So yeah, the, the film slate, especially for 2024, looks really, really shaky, Paul. Can you tell us, Geetha, what the uh, the studios and the actors want that is maybe if it's different or in what, how does it compare to the writer's strike that has already resolved? Yeah, so, the, you know, with the writer's strike, of course, a lot of it was in terms of remuneration. A lot of it was in terms of transparency, in terms of viewership metrics. And I think the studios have promised to do better, uh, both in terms of paying them as far as residuals are concerned, as far as releasing, you know, some of the viewership numbers, as well as some more guardrails around kind of the use of AI. Um, I, I think what the with the actors, it's a little bit of a different situation, though. First of all, there are four times the number of actors that there are writers, and so the whole calculus kind of changes from an economics perspective, and it's it's going to be pretty onerous for the studios to kind of accept all of the actors' conditions, and I and so that's where I think there is, you know, a, a lot of you know the differences of, of of opinion kind of creeping up. On top of that, I think the actors are getting. Uh, I don't know if, if greedy is the right word to use, but they definitely want a lot more. So if, for shows that are being viewed uh, probably more often, they want you know this what what the studios are calling this viewership bonus kind of a payment. It's almost like a little bit of a tax. That's how uh, you know Ted Serendos kind of called it. Um, so they're not happy with that. So so we'll have to see. I mean, somebody has to cave. There has to be some compromise. All right, pivot yet again. Disney. Um, they're looking to kind of. I don't know if restructure is the right word, but certainly looking at all their assets. And one of the big assets is their satellite business in India, um, which I think they got from the Fox acquisition. I'm not, not sure. Talk to us about what's going on there. There's a story that they may be looking to sell some or all of it. You know, you're absolutely right. So when they paid the $71 billion for a huge chunk of the Fox assets, a big part of that was actually Star India. Um, and Star India is really a collection of plenty of local TV networks, about 60 TV channels, and a very, very robust streaming service, which was called Hotstar. And this was really one of the crown jewels that Disney thought they got when they kind of acquired, uh, when they made that acquisition, because Hotstar really had a lot of users on its streaming platform, over about 100, 150 million. Wow. And so it kind of really helped them juice that Disney Plus subscriber number because they were selling it as Disney Plus uh, Hotstar. And so when subscriber numbers were the main metric of success, I mean, this was this was the huge story for them. Of course, all of that changed because the, the main problem with Hotstar was, yes, subscriber growth was good, but the revenue that a Hotstar user brought in was very, very low compared to a U.S. subscriber, but only about one-tenth the revenue that a U.S. Disney Plus subscriber would bring in. So it obviously was kind of really hurting the bottom line. There was this additional issue with, you know, sports rights and, you know, the, the rights of cricket. 
which is really important in, in, in a country like India, but Disney didn't want to pay up. And so they lo they started losing subscribers. And eventually, we, it kind of, uh, Disney kind of came to a point where they decided that the best thing to do uh, in terms of, you know, um, the business and, and the overall strategy would be to kind of get rid of, of uh, the whole Star India operation. And so right now they're looking to talk um, with one of the biggest uh, telecom operators in, in India, which is Reliance. Uh, the, the, I think the sticking point right now is really the price. It ranges anywhere from about 7 billion to 10 billion. I think Disney wants 10 billion. Reliance probably wants to pay closer to 7 to 8 billion. So they're looking to probably not sell the whole thing to still kind of keep some kind of stake, uh, but definitely any uh, any progress there and any influx of cash would I think be great for Disney, which has a lot more strategic kind of decisions to make, especially with the purchase of Hulu. They still have yep. to buy out Comcast 33% stake. So that's hanging in the balance along with all the other things in terms of their linear TV networks as well as ESPN. All right, Keith, I think we kind of got through everything and which we can do with you. Um, Geetha Ranganathan, she is the the media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, breaking it all down. We've got Spotify, good numbers. Uh, Hollywood actors in the studios still at an impasse. And Disney's thinking about what to do with their assets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.